We are in John chapter 17, uh, in verse 9 and 10 this morning. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This is the word of the Lord. The title of my message this morning has an extra word in it that I want you to strike out. And it should say God's heart for his own, not for his own son, but for his own. The reason that's important this morning is because I believe with all of my heart, one of the ways that you get to know what's in the soul of another, particularly in another man or another woman, is listening to them to listening to them pray when they don't know you're listening. When, you know, sometimes when people know you're listening, there's opportunity to put things in it. Maybe we shouldn't, thinking we have to somehow do it in a certain way. But to listen to somebody pray when they don't know you're listening. Because then you see what is in their heart as they pray, honestly. So I don't think it's any different with God. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And so we get to know his heart by what he prays about. That's why it's, it's a glimpse into God's heart as we see these things. Now, keep that in mind because I'm going to divulge a bit to another thing this morning, which is always a little dangerous. But I, I was prompted this morning as I was here worshiping and hearing the things that we're singing about and thinking about some of the words that we sang and some of the songs to think back to my Sunday school class. I do this for a couple of reasons. One reason is to to tell you that my class started out with one title and have kind of morphed into a different title. Um, we were we were going to and and still will talk about fighting for joy. But I told my class uh, as we began that I was also at the end of that going to tag on a study about heaven and about the biblical view of heaven. And I flipped those two things. And so right now we're talking about heaven. We're talking about what the Bible has to say about heaven and the view of heaven that we have and the understanding of what heaven is like. And in that context this morning, as I'm thinking about that, because I have to change gears now to preach, but I'm I'm thinking we sang the words, we will see you face to face and forever we will worship, which we will. But if you've been in my class, you'll understand why I'm doing this this morning. We need to be careful about that. Understanding that. I think about the children as they sing that. I hope that what they don't see is that it will just be a elongated for all eternity worship service. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I think worship services should be full of joy and passion and all of that. But when it says for all of forever we will worship. We're not sitting in pews like this, worship. If that's the only concept that your children have of worship, which is a good concept, but if it's the only concept they have, that that's not going to register as well as it should. So it seems to me one of the things we have to learn to do is make all of life worship, which it is. All of our life is worship. You are always worshiping something in your life, Always. I worship what's 
most important to you. And so learning to make God most important in all of life as we go through life, as we make our way through life, is a better way to see for all eternity we will worship. So learning to see creation and not worship it, but worship the creator as you enjoy creation, learning to do that with your children, seeing them see you worship even in the midst of not sitting in a pew but being out in nature or other things, learning to see you in make all of life worship then makes that make more sense to them. So if you want to know more about why I, I actually make that point this morning, you're certainly welcome if you're not a part of a Sunday school class to come. And, and I think it's valuable to get a proper understanding of what it, we will do for all eternity. If we're going to do it forever, it's important that we get a proper understanding of what that is forever and that we communicate it clearly to others. So, again, just a bit of a, of a commercial but also a teaching point. I think I can't resist a teaching point. The danger of that, the second danger of doing that is I'll for, forget my first priority to preach. The second danger is my wife said just before I was getting ready to come up, she said, I have lots of kids. How long are you going to be? <laughs> I didn't answer her. I know better than that. So pray for her. She she saw all the children this morning and realized um, she needed God's help. Well, let's look at John chapter 17 this morning. Let's let's take some time to look at God's heart here. Um, quickly, just to go back, the high priestly prayer is is praying about three things. Jesus first prays about himself briefly. Um, then he prays for his immediate disciples that are with him. And then he prays for those who will believe because of those disciples and because of their ministry going into all the world and basically prays for us there. But we've talked about himself. Now we've, the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about Jesus' prayer for his disciples. A couple of things just to, to get us back there. Remember that that when, when, when he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for those whom the Father gave him. The disciples the Father has given him. He clearly says, I've manifested your name to people in verse 6, whom you gave me out of the world. Understanding he's praying for those that the Father has given him. Uh, those, those who in verse 8 who are described more fully where it says, For I've given them the words you gave me, that they and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. That's crucial. The, the disciples were different from those who said these are hard sayings in John chapter 6 and it says they turned and no longer followed him. Many walked away. They were disciples in the loose term, loose use of the word disciple. They were following him, but they weren't true followers. And the evidence that they weren't true followers, they did not receive the word. The word about Christ. They couldn't, they could not receive it into their lives that he had been sent from God. And he started to talk about difficult things and they turned and no longer followed him. So, so the ones that Jesus is praying for are those who have received the word about him and have come as Peter did in John chapter six to say, we know you have the words of eternal life and there's no place else to go. We, we, we stay here, we stand here, even in the midst that we know they didn't understand it all. They didn't have it all put together in the pre-cross experience of receiving the word. They, they couldn't, but they knew there was no place else 
They knew that Jesus had been sent from God. What he was about to experience, they had no concept of, really. Later, they would understand that he said it would happen, and God would use that to confirm their receiving of the word and all of that. But that's that's whom Jesus now is praying for, those disciples, the them. It says in the text in verse 9, I am praying for them. The them are them that we've just described. Those the Father gave him, those who have received the word about Christ and have not walked away from him, but have stayed with him, even in the midst of all of their conclusions. And, and then he gives us three reasons why he prays for them. First of all, he says I, I, he's praying for them because they belong to the Father. And secondly, because they belong to the Father, they belong to Jesus. He has a mutual interest in them because they belong to Jesus. And then thirdly, Jesus says, I'm praying for them because they glorify me. So I want to look at those three things um, quickly this morning as we look at this text. Now, it's important to note something in the text. Because it says who he's praying for. It says, I'm praying for them. But it also tells us who he is not praying for. And that distinction is important to understand. It says in verse 9, I am praying for them... And then he says specifically, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again, that idea that Father has given them to Jesus, and they are yours. But he's not praying for the world. So what is that distinction? He clearly makes, I'm praying for them, but not for the world. It's, it's important to understand this prayer is specific Specific to the them and to the them that will believe because of them. In other words, us, if we're believers today, that believe on account of the word. It, it trickles down to that. I think it's God's heart for us as well who've believed on account of their word. But most specifically now, he says, I'm praying for them. For them, these disciples, these that have received the word about Christ. What I want to do is just read to you a bit of of the differentiation between those two things because this is this is really important to see this distinction to see that Jesus clearly makes this distinction um, and understand what that distinction is and the powerfulness of that distinction so let me read what Don Carson says in his commentary try to follow with me here I'll try to make some points here that are important to kind of lift up out of what he says he says this for these disciples then Jesus prays Here clearly with the sense, I asked for something. The Greek word order makes the contrast very sharp. Not for the world, but for those you have given me. The next words summarize all the grounds adduced so far, for they are yours. Then he goes on to say, The antithesis between the disciples and the world is extremely sharp, but it should not be made absolute. The Father loves the world so much that he sends his Son who is designated the Savior of the world. On the other hand, the distinction between the disciples and the world should not be reduced to a merely utilitarian, to to merely utilitarian, as if Jesus restricts himself to praying for his disciples for no other reason than they are the means for reaching the world. True, their mission is mentioned a few verses later, and Jesus can pray for those who will believe through their message. Even so, the fundamental reason for Jesus' self-imposed restriction, this is key, the fundamental reason for the self-imposed restriction as to whom he prays for at this point is not utilitarian or missiological, but theological. And the theological reason is they are 
yours. And he's speaking of the Father. That's a key statement where it says, they are yours, Father. And that's why I'm praying for them. However wide is the love of God, Carson goes on to say, however salvific the stance of Jesus toward the world, there's a peculiar relationship of love, of intimacy, disclosure, obedience, faith, dependence, joy, peace, and eschatological blessing and fruitfulness that binds the disciples together with the Godhead, with the Father and the Son. These themes have dominated the farewell discourse, which is what we've been in these weeks as we've looked at the final word. The world can be prayed for only to the end that some who now belong to it might abandon it and join with others who have been chosen out of the world. There is nothing intrinsic to the world itself granted what John makes of the world that could sanction prayers on its behalf. To pray for the world, and this is a an incredibly important statement. To pray for the world, the created moral order in active rebellion against God would be blasphemous. There is no more, there is no hope for the world. There is hope only for some who now constitute the world, but who will cease to be the world and will join those of whom Jesus prays, for they are yours. The distinction is crucial. Let me, let me tell you why. Because there is an idea out there. It's in the air we breathe in our culture that has false notions about the love of God. False notions that it's, that it's absolute, that God loves. And the, and the opposite of that, therefore God in no way could ever judge or never bring judgment, or never extend wrath. That's not biblical. That's not biblical. Just take a text with me for a moment. Romans chapter 8. I want you to turn there or listen carefully if you, if you don't have your Bibles. But let me, let me read to you what Romans chapter 8 says. And what I want you to understand is what it says in Romans chapter 8 about the love of God is not all-inclusive. It is talking about those whom Jesus is praying for him. It's talking about the them. These promises are for the them that Jesus is praying for, for those disciples specifically. But many times people want to take these promises and, and, and extract them farther than they should be extracted. So listen to the text. Listen to the scripture. It says, What then shall we say to these things, to what things? To the gospel, really. If God is for us, is what the gospel says, for all who are in Christ, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither life nor or death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are powerful promises. But they are promises only for the them to whom Jesus is praying at this point. And those who will believe on account of their word, yes, us, if we're believers today because of the word of others, but it is not all-inclusive. The world wants to make it all-inclusive. The world wants to say that God gave his son for everyone. But he didn't. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all and all inclusively. But that's not what scripture says. He gave him up for those the father had given the son. He gave him up for those who received the word of Christ. Yes, gloriously gave him up. That's the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel. But it doesn't go beyond that. Scripture says that plainly. It says also that He will graciously give them all things. That's a wonderful promise for believers. Scripture says he will didn't spare his own son. He'll graciously give us all things. It's exactly what I was talking about when I was talking about us getting all the grace we need to live for the glory of God. That's what I think that promise is. He will graciously give us all the strength, all the power we need to live for the glory of God. He will not withhold it. He will give it. He will supply it. But not for everyone. Again, only for those, only for those who have received the word about the Son, only for those, the them of that text and those who believe on account of them. It goes on to say that no one will be able to separate us from that love. Those are two powerful things. In verse 35, look at what it says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We witnessed that in May's life this, these last days. Nothing could separate her from the love of Christ, even though it was difficult as she, as she longed to be separated from this broken body that she was in. But nothing can separate us. But who are the us again? And it goes on farther. It says, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is only a promise for believers. Because in fact, death will separate the world from the love of God if you die outside of Christ. All you have to look forward to outside of Christ is the wrath of God for all eternity. That's biblical. And so people want to take texts like this, oh, nothing can separate me from the love of God. It's a wonderful thing. You see, those promises are for those to whom Jesus prayed. They're specific to them. They're specific to believers. And it's why we need to run to him. It's why the scripture says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day for those who are of the world to receive the word about Christ. 
unto themselves so that they can experience the promises of God, the promises that he gave up his son for them, the promise that he will graciously give us all things. If he didn't withhold the best, will he give us less, not give us less, withhold less? No. Can anything separate us from the love of Christ? No. No. But that's only a promise for believers, but but it is the heart of God toward his people. The wonderful promises are, are the heart of God toward his people. All who receive the word of Christ and, and receive who he is. God loves his people. God the Father loves his people in a distinct way. There's, there's no need of the fear of punitive punishment from the hand of God if we are in Christ. Because all of the punitive effect of what, what is being stored up by God is put on Christ for believers. Now, that isn't true for unbelievers. There is the frightful expectation of judgment coming. The, the wrath being stored up that is not on Christ goes on them. You see, it's incredibly important that, that we are biblical, that we understand that, but, but we must then come to appreciate the love of the Father for us. We are his possession. And as much as those outside of Christ can expect God's justice to fall, those in Christ can expect the same that God's justice will hold firm. And if he has punished Christ, if he has put our sins on Christ, he will not put them on us. And all of the promises in Christ to us are yes. It's a wonderful promise. It's a wonderful thing. It's why Jesus prays for those individuals. He prays for those who are specifically... um, the fathers now as we go back to John chapter 17 and look at that text. But he goes beyond that. He goes beyond praying for them in, that, that are his and that the father, as it describes here, they are yours. But then in verse 10 he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. In other words, it's a mutual kind of thing. It's not only that they are the fathers, but they're also the sons. There's a, there's a mutual love of the Father for his own. God um, God is for his people and not against them. If, if God be for us, who can be against us? A wonderful promise. God will not be accused. God will not be accused of not being able to save a people. In fact, that is what God has set out to do. He set out to save a people and he, 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 he wrapped all of that in the work of his son for them. And, and Romans chapter 8 is a powerful chapter of saying if, if God did all of this, if God did all of this, who can be against us? Who can be successfully against us? God is not. And he will not let anything that is against us destroy us. So Jesus is praying in those kinds of contexts as he prays. And I think it's important for us just to stop for a moment now. Just, just stop for a moment and let that soak in. Do you, do you really believe, do you really believe that, in fact, you are His? 
that you are his possession? Do you live in the reality, do you functionally live in the reality that you are God's possession because of the work of his son, because you've received the word about his son and you're standing on that, you're not looking anywhere else, that's your only hope. See, that's why it's important to constantly go back to the gospel even as believers because it continues to speak to us that we are his, we are his possession. And he reminds us of the work he did and the expense he extended, if you will, expense of his son to make you his possession. He loves you. He loves you, wants the best for you. That doesn't mean at times that he doesn't bring discipline into our lives, but he always does it because he loves us. Do we, do we believe that? It's fundamental. It's bedrock. It's bedrock that you understand. You understand that you are God's possession if you were in Christ. A precious possession. A precious possession of God. Jesus knew that. He prayed about that. He prayed it because he has mutual interest in it as well. What the Father has is the Son's, and what the Son has is the Father's. They both have the same heart. And then thirdly, he he prays this because he says, I am glorified in them. He prays for them because Jesus knows he is glorified in them. People see his his true nature, his true beauty in those people. The sun be lifted up. He will draw them in. And so part of what these people who he prays for, the them, are lifting up Christ, are, are lifting him up to let the world see the true beauty of who he is so that they might be drawn to him as well. How is he glorified? There's a multitudes of ways that Jesus is glorified in them. He's glorified in saving them. Uh, principally, I think that's where Jesus is glorified in the them, in those disciples, in, in, in saving them. And in the work that he's going to do, in this case, as, as Jesus prays for them, he is looking ahead to his finished work. He's looking to what he's going to do, knowing that that will accomplish everything that's needed for the sins, their sins, that have been passed over. Romans chapter 8 says, God passed over sins for a time. And in, in case the disciples would fit into that camp to a degree, they, he, God had passed over their sins so that Christ then could die for them and be just in forgiving those sins. But the glory of the gospel, the apex of the glory of God is in the work of Christ. If you want to see the beauty of God, if you want to see the beauty of God's heart, look at the face of Christ. That's what scripture says. And look at, look at Christ's life particularly in why he came. He came to die. Came to die as a man on a cross because it would take a man to die. But then the scripture says, as we talked about in my Sunday school class, he identifies with man forever and all eternity future because he doesn't go back to just being God. But for all eternity future, he identifies with a people being fully man and fully God among them apex of his glory 
is in saving a people. God, as I've said already, God will not be accused of not being able to save a people. That's what I think the scripture means in the Old Testament when it says nothing is too hard for God. You, you think about that text and you think nothing's too hard for God. It's not too hard for him to create something or do something in your life that you may want him to do. But, but that text, that context of that text is not in those things. It's in the heart of man. The rebellious heart of man. That text means nothing is too hard. Not even the heart of man. God will not be accused of not being able to save a people. He, he is going to save a people for himself and the hardness of their heart will not defeat him. It will not defeat him in accomplishing his purpose. Second thing is there were, he is glorified not only in, in saving them, but one of the ways that God is particularly glorified is by us trusting him. By us trusting him. That, that really gets close to home, doesn't it, for us? You think about it for a minute. Probably one of the most disrespectful things you could ever feel in your life, maybe you've felt it, is have somebody come to you and say, I don't trust you. I just don't trust you. I don't trust you. I don't trust you. And yet, oftentimes we do that to God. He gives us promises. He expresses promises to us. And and we don't trust them. We don't trust his promise. We don't trust the promises that he gives us in Scripture. His promises that we read in Romans chapter 8. So one of the best ways that we can honor God and, and make him look as beautiful as he is, is by trusting him, by resting in his promises, trusting the promises of God. One of the statements that was helpful to me, I've shared it before with you, early in my Christian life, is I had to come to a point where I began to say to myself, your word, Lord, is more true than what I'm feeling, because inside, sometimes I would feel a certain way, and I would think that's the reality. And one of the things God taught me to do was to take the word of God and to say, This is more true, Lord, than what I feel because it comes from you, because you have said it. And learning to trust the word of God, learning to take your feelings, take your life, and and use the word of God to tell you what is real and what is true. Uh, I, I, I think it's important as we pray to pray the word of God because you're praying truth. You're resting in truth but learning to trust him. Jesus was praying for them that they would trust him. They would trust him. Thirdly, we're glorified as we seek to fight sin at the heart level. Jesus knew that. He would be glorified in his disciples as they sought to fight sin in their lives, as they sought to to be a holy people after God's heart. And certainly that's what should begin to happen in the life of a true believer. There begins to be a growing desire to fight sin, to come against sin, to hate sin, if you will. And to long, as I said in my Sunday class this morning, for a day when there is no more sin. All of that should be characteristic of believers. And so one of the ways we glorify God is when we begin to fight sin in our lives. And the world begins to see that. They begin to see that because they know their own hearts. We've said this before. When you fight sin at the heart level, the world looks on and they know their hearts. 
those outside of Christ. And they know they don't automatically operate that way. And so when they see somebody who operates differently than they do, responds differently than they do, they begin to scratch their heads and they begin to say, why? Why does my heart go here? How can that person go a different direction? How can that be? When, when we don't return evil for evil or we're willing to be wronged or we forgive or we don't demand our rights or we move toward an enemy instead of away from an enemy or we seek to make peace where there's war, all of those kinds of things are the heart-level stuff. And, and what glorifies God is when people see the reality of God in our lives when we come against our hearts and we do things that do not come natural to them. And they begin to look for reasons of the hope that's within us. And, and we can talk about Christ. We can, we can bring it back to him and, and glorify him. And then finally, I think God is glorified as we declare him to the world, which is part of what I just said. He is, he is glorified in his people, in them, as they declare him to the world, both with word and deed, as, as they declare Christ to the world around us. He's glorified as they, as they begin to live out what we talked about this morning, to live is Christ, to fight sin in our lives, to live is Christ here come against sin, live for him in this life, and die as gain. They, they begin to see that, that dying is, is not loss, but it is gain. It is, it is gaining Christ more fully. It is gaining all that he's promised more fully. It is no longer looking through a glass darkly, but beginning to see face to face. All of those things I think Jesus is praying. He's praying for these disciples that, that, that they might glorify him. So for you, because you have believed, if you're a believer today, on account of their word, I think he's also praying it for you, that, that God is at the, or Jesus is at the right hand of the Father even now, interceding for us, praying that we might glorify him. And the way we glorify him is letting him extend the grace we need to live for his glory. So we can have great confidence, I think, in the way that Jesus prayed. He, he wants us to glorify him. He wants us to, to, to make him look as attractive as he is by our lives. So he doesn't begrudge those kinds of prayers. He doesn't begrudge it. He didn't begrudge saving a people. He doesn't begrudge enabling those people to live for his glory. That's the heart of God. He's not against you. He's for you. He wants all of that to take place in your life. He wants you to understand more than you want to understand and rest in it that you are his. You are the fathers. You are the sons. He wants you to know that. He wants you to rest in that. And he wants the outgrowth of that rest to be glorifying him as you come to to see that, as you come to cherish that, as you come to feed on that daily and, and realize the reality of that, that we would glorify him with our lives. God, help us to be that kind of a people. God, help us to, to live in that way. We're going to sing together as we close this morning a song that we sang in our prayer time this morning, Lord, I need you. 
Every hour I need you. You are my righteousness. I need that continually, but I need you all of the time. And the neat thing about that prayer is that he doesn't begrudge it. He doesn't, he doesn't turn it away. In fact, it's what glorifies him the most as we allow him to do his work in us, as we allow him to provide the grace we need. He is glorified. And he prayed. He prayed for them because he's glorified in them. He prays for you as well because he's glorified in you, allowing him to provide the grace you need in every circumstance. Come to him this morning, even as we continue to worship. Stand with me, will you? Where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh, God, how I need you. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. suggest something as we close and we're going to pray this morning, this week in your life. Tomorrow morning, maybe sooner, but tomorrow morning as you awaken, acknowledge your need of God and ask for his help. Don't, don't, in one sense, understand this, don't plead for his help. Don't beg for his help in the sense of somehow you have to say it loud enough or long enough for God to be willing to do it. But rather than that, just trust him that he wants to do it. Just ask him, Lord, I need you. I need your grace. I need your help. And then just trust that he prayed that prayer. He's willing not unwilling and begin to do that as a rhythm of your life I need you I need you 
I need you. Trusting that he honors that prayer. And see if you don't sense the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, help us. Sometimes I think we fall into the category of thinking we have to convince you to help your people. But your heart is to help your people. Help us to see it differently. Certainly to pray humbly, to pray at times repentantly, Father, and we fail. But, but to realize that you are willing and your promise is to help your people and your heart is to help your people with all the grace, all the strength we need to live for your glory every moment of every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.